Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. a little bit of time, we have been talking about some warnings uh, of the likelihood of difficult days to come and the need for preparation. Um, In in that vein, there are a couple of resources that I want to uh, highly commend to you. And so let me just kind of briefly tell you about what these are here. The first one here is uh, The Hiding Place. Uh, This is the account uh, told from a firsthand account from Corey Ten Boom. Uh, whose family developed an underground network of hiding uh, Jews uh, from the Nazis uh, in the days of, of World War II. Um, we, we had read this, uh, Tara and I, more than a decade ago, something like that. We just recently started re- reading it again with the girls in like little 10 minute increments. I am just uh, melting, uh, being inspired, um, being helped. Um, one by uh, Corey Ten Boom and her family's love, kindness, service, warmth, desire for souls to be saved, uh, influential. Also very helpful though, because in the book, you see them wrestling through the theology of how do Christians behave uh, in unrighteous days, wrestling through the complex ethical issues of civil disobedience. And what about honesty and telling the truth when there is unrighteousness that's happening. So you see them wrestle through the theology of those things. Incredibly helpful. I think you'll be uh, moved to evangelism as well as thinking through some critical things. Uh, Second one here, Tortured for Christ. Uh, This is uh, the account of Richard Wormbrand. I've told you about him a number of times in some illustrations, uh, in sermons and such. Uh, there's There's a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. Um, It's a ministry I think you should be uh, involved with and aware of, uh, stay in contact with. Um, I believe it's still the case. If you contact Voice of the Martyrs like online, they will send you this book for free. Um, That costs them tens of thousands of dollars to send out free copies of this book. They do that because they are so convinced that if you will read it, um, you will be awakened to a greater seriousness Um, in your walk with Christ, as well as um, a sympathy and and, uh, uh, fellowship with those who suffer. Um, And so you you follow the story of Richard Wormbrand um, and his obedience to God, underground uh, uh, a church once again, uh, effort that is there. And we see his uh, courage and grit and faithfulness through persecution, torture, imprisonment, etc. So highly commend those resources to you. They will bless your soul in preparing. Romans 10, Uh, let's read through uh, verses one through four, then pray, and then we'll look at the text. So begin with me in verse one. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we, your people, fall before you. We are bowing ourselves beneath your greatness and asking, O oh Lord, that you would look on us with mercy once again. And, and this, is, this is the great blessing we're asking for, O oh God. We are not asking for riches. We are not asking for our, our life to be comfortable and peaceful. Lord, right now we are asking that you would give us more of yourself, that we would understand your truth. Please, oh God, send your spirit. Please awaken eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that is humble and low before you. And I pray, oh God, that you will instruct us. And we pray, Lord, that as you instruct us, specifically in these truths we're going to consider this morning, Lord, I pray that you will produce in us humility, warmth of heart, desire to obey, greater gratitude, 
greater desire to serve, Lord, greater desire to live unto you, flowing out of our deeper understanding of the gospel of grace and what you have accomplished. Convince us, Lord, that we really do bring not even a fraction of an ounce of righteousness that, that, uh, that commends us to you, but that it is only the righteousness of Christ. And I pray, God, that will produce things inside of us. So, Lord, in, in the mystery of the miracles that you work, of, of how you apply your word, we pray, oh God, that it would happen mightily in this time. Bless me to preach. I pray, protect me, help me. Bless uh, this church family as we hear and worship. And we pray for our, our little ones in the next room as they hear your word. And we pray, oh God, that you will awaken there as well. Have mercy. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are uh, beginning a new chapter, and uh, this new chapter has its contribution that it makes in the overall section of chapters 9 through 11. So 9 through 11 is a, is a segment, it is a unit in itself, and chapter 10 has a way it contributes to that overall um, statement that is there. So let, let's talk a bit about the central idea of the whole chapter. And then I want, I want to tell you a little bit of how it breaks down, and when we see how it divides up, that starts to open up our understanding of it. The central idea um, of chapter 10 can be found in verses 11 through 13. Now, as you glance at that, and I'm going to read it here in just a second, that is significant as well, because when we started chapter nine and I was introducing the whole segment of chapters nine through 11 to you, I told you that chapter 10 verses 11 to 13 is also the central idea of the whole section. Okay. So we are working our way here uh, towards um, the theology that is at the center of this whole section. So read 11 to 13 with me for the scripture says, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So central theology here is that because salvation, because justification, us being made right with God comes by faith, this means then that Gentiles can be saved at the moment of believing. It's not dependent on the law. Now, we stated that last week. We have mentioned this a number of times. What chapter 10 is going to do is bring us deeper into our understanding of that truth and then take us further. Because remember, truths of the Bible are, are not like um, memorizing multiplication tables, okay? Memorize multiplication tables, three times three equals nine. Um, you memorize that, you got it. Truths of the Bible are different than that. Truths of the Bible we learn and there's a lifetime of being able to go deeper. God is holy. You're gonna spend eternity. You're gonna spend eternity going deeper in your understanding of the holiness of God. And additionally, when it comes to the gospel of grace, it's not a yes or no question, do we know it? You're going to spend eternity with the angels longing to look into these things, going deeper into these things. So chapter 10 is still going to say some of the things we have already said, but we're going to be brought deeper. And about the first two thirds of the chapter is explaining this, making the case briefly again, um, but in order to then take us deeper and the last third of the chapter is going to take us into some new territory, some things we've not yet mentioned. So we're building towards that. Um, let me show you the outline as, as I see the thought process in the chapter. I see four, four sections, four sections. And here they are. Number one, in verses one through four, which we're considering today, the righteousness that we sinners need before God comes through faith in Christ. Number two, in verses five through 13, therefore, so it's, it's built on the previous truth, therefore, whoever believes will be saved. Number three, in verses 14 and 15, we will look at the human side of salvation. 
Uh, we've done a lot of talking about the, uh, the heavenly perspective, what God's work in salvation is. Now there is a really important section uh, on the human side. What is the human responsibility? And then number four, 16 to 21, bringing us into some new territory there. Both Jews and Gentiles are accountable uh, before God. And we're going to see the pr particular way in which it addresses that. So in this message, I'm going to work us through the first point here which is the righteousness that we sinners need before God comes through faith in Christ. And there are four verses in this. Each, each verse um, contributes something to it. So I'm going to do it four, four parts as well, each verse. And we'll look at each verse separately there and its contributions. So look back again with me, please, at verse one, and let's consider it. It begins with uh, brethren. So he is, he's, he's still addressing the Christians that he is writing to at the church at Rome. Uh, brethren, uh, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, who is the them, he is still on this subject of physical Israel, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the bloodline of Israel. So he's not speaking about the believing Israelites, but of those that have not trusted in Christ. My prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So I want you to notice a couple of things so far. One is um, similar to when we began chapter nine. One of the points that Paul is making here is, okay, guys, I'm going to be talking about Israel's errors, but don't misunderstand where I'm coming from because it is a misunderstanding that all throughout the centuries, some who even read the Bible, it's a misunderstanding, but some who even read the Bible have come to is kind of uh, reading about Israel's errors and then developing a spiritual arrogance and kind of adopting this mentality, mentality of, uh, yeah, those idiots, what were, they, what were they thinking? Yeah, we hate them, right, Paul? And Paul's like, don't misunderstand where I'm coming from here. I'm, I'm going to bring up Israel's errors, but my heart breaks for them. I weep when I pray for them. My desire is for their salvation. And so additionally, I, I want you to notice Paul's evangelistic yearning, uh, the warmth of his heart, the affection that he has, this longing for souls to be saved. You know, being a Christian for a long period of time there start to be certain temptations that we have, we have to guard against. There start to be certain temptations that we've got to keep an eye on our hearts over. If you've been a Christian for more than 10 years, you know, one of the temptations we got to watch out for is, you know, the day can come, we can forget what it was like before we were a Christian and some of the ways we used to think, and we can develop some spiritual arrogance. We can come to a place we forget what it was like when I was a new Christian. And we didn't have it figured out yet. And we had a whole lot of inconsistencies and contradictions in our life. And we can lose grace with new Christians because we forget what it is like. And we also have to guard against a callousness, a callousness, a hardness of heart developing inside of us over the course of time, an unbiblical and ungodly coldness of heart towards the lost. As we grow in Christ, it's possible to learn a lot of knowledge, get big heads, but even go backwards when it comes to the love internally, big heads with cold hearts. Now, the answer for that is not, you know, big hearts and small brains, okay? No, we want, you know, big brains, big knowledge, big robust theology, but like the apostles modeled for us, also warmth of heart that never loses and only increases in that desire for souls to be saved. Repeatedly, we notice throughout the New Testament, um, the apostles' um, heart and desire for souls to be saved, the affection with which they looked on people. More importantly, we see it is the case with Jesus. This is a Christ-likeness to have a warm heart, but thick skin, a warm heart, but big in knowledge. You know, of all the ways that we see Jesus's character on display 
as you read through the Gospels, the part that I find the most amazing is uh, Jesus's patience, the, the, the grace that he showed towards crowds at times where I'm reading it, and my blood's boiling and I'm not even there. I know I would have sinned by saying some ungodly kinds of things in some of those moments. And we see Jesus's uh, willingness to show grace um, in some of those times. You know, I find it remarkable that Jesus never had a wicked thought. It's astounding. I find it remarkable that Jesus never sinned as a teenager by disrespecting his parents. It's remarkable. I think I find it even more remarkable. It's even more astounding to see the amount of, of, of grace, gentleness, warmth of heart that Jesus showed towards people. Um, do, do you remember that occasion with the rich young ruler? And in that encounter, the rich young ruler comes in and he's lost. His heart is resistant towards God. It's unrepentant. And he left that encounter still unrepentant. This was a man headed towards hell. But in the gospels, we are told that as Jesus was conversing with this young man, that Jesus felt love for him. It doesn't just say that Jesus had love for him. It says that Jesus felt love for him. A young man who was heading towards hell, Jesus had affection for him. Do you remember that time that Jesus told the apostles, let's go away for a while to rest? It was one of those occasions that uh, he and the apostles had been working some really long days, uh, teaching, healing, conversing, answering questions. You know, the, the gospels give a little bit of the indication that the apostles were starting to get a little grumpy, <laughs> starting to get a little grouchy. And, and Jesus, even Jesus in his human flesh began to get weary. And he said to the apostles, Let, let's go away for a while uh, for a time of rest. So they get in a boat and they, they begin to sail across the sea of Galilee there. And the crowds kind of like selfish inconsiderate media uh, swarming and hounding a celebrity, they follow the boat along the shore. So Jesus is sailing across the, the sea there and the crowd is following him along the shore so that when the boat lands, the crowd just comes mobbing them once again. And now you get the indication that the apostles are about ready to blow a gasket. Like the Lord of heaven just said he's tired and needs to rest. Go away. But that, that was not Jesus's response. The text says that Jesus felt compassion for them. They spent another long day. It gets close to evening. The apostles are like, Lord, send them home. Let them go get something to eat. And Jesus says to them, you feed them. And that is one of the occasions that Jesus fed the crowd. It's a pretty big miracle that Jesus fed that crowd. It might be a bigger miracle that he didn't cast them into the sea from hounding them. The grace, the patience, the warmth that he showed. Christian, being like Jesus means that we need to develop a big love with warm affections in our hearts towards people. Jesus modeled that really difficult combination of thick skin and warm heart. Thick skin and warm heart. You know, that, that's, that's a really tough combination because, you know, in our, in our human side, we know that kind of naturally some personalities can have thick skin, but cold heart. Some have warm hearts, but thin skin. It's a really difficult combination to put all of those together. Jesus modeled that though. Jesus modeled courage a willingness to rebuke and to say words that sting when the occasion called for it, but still yet at the same time, warmth of heart. And, and Paul demonstrates that here. We see it th throughout his ministry. He wept over his kinsmen. He cried out to God. He tears streamed down his face as he prayed for the Israelites. You know, don't, don't forget those First three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, let me read them to you. Same guy, the Apostle Paul speaking by the Holy Spirit. He said, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You know, where he says there, if I know all mysteries and have all knowledge, you know, we we could insert there some of the ways that we're tempted to venerate certain people, certain celebrity preachers, brilliant Christians. You know, we, we could substitute there. You can have read more books than anybody on the planet, written more books than anybody on the planet. If everyone on the planet thinks that I'm brilliant and the model Christian, but do not have love, I am nothing. On the day of judgment, it will amount to nothing. This is a sober word. And see Paul modeling um, gospel zeal, knowing the sovereignty of God, Knowing the depth of the gospel should not bring about a callousness and a decreasing concern. The more we know the gospel, it should bring an increasing desire for more souls to be saved. Look at verse two. He says, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge zeal without knowledge. The Jewish people were a highly religious people, but as we have mentioned, you can be religious, but be lost. You can be devout. You can even be zealous and be lost. Um, Zeal without knowledge. A great many religious people in Baptist churches are lost. Okay, are are you a member here? Good. We think you should be. We think that honors God. But don't think it saves you. Don't think that it guarantees your salvation. You must be united to the person of the Lord Jesus by faith. You must receive him by personal trusting in Christ. Being religious or zealous or passionate is not enough. Zeal must be united with truth. In John 4, uh, you remember that occasion of Jesus uh, addressing the woman at the well. And in that passage, one of the things he said is, is that the father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth. Both of those together must be present for worship to be authentic, for for it to be accepted by God, regarded by God. You you remember when Cain uh, lifted up an offering and God did not accept it, okay? Just because a person is religious, does a religious thing, offers up an attempt at worship, does not mean that God accepts it, does not mean that it will be regarded. Okay, there are, there are criterias. There are certain things that God demands. Spirit and truth is, is how one of the ways Jesus summed it up. So to worship in spirit means, that's not talking about the Holy Spirit there, though certainly he is aiding us and stirring us, but it is talking about your spirit. To worship in spirit means that you are worshiping first from within. This is internal love for God, affection for God, religious affections is the way that Jonathan Edwards would often uh, speak of them. He had a lot of great things to say in that regard. This is the internal worship that then gets expressed externally. So this is not just going through motions. This is not just singing how everybody else is singing, okay? You know, I'm I'm like you, uh, the occasional time comes that here we are singing and I get to thinking about something else entirely. Okay? I get distracted. In that moment, I'm not worshiping because I'm not engaging internally. My mouth is saying words. My heart is not engaged. To worship in spirit is to worship internally okay? and then to lift it outwardly. And then to worship in truth is, means that we are doing so with a true knowledge of God. We are informed by the word that God has given from heaven. We know who God is because we have studied the word. We are worshiping in accordance with the ways that he has specified to worship. He has given us in his word and and a lot more things that we could say in regard to truth. But let me tell you the most critical and the one that pertains the most to the passage here and what Paul is getting at most critically 
Worship cannot be right worship unless it knows Jesus, who is the spotlight, the center, and the focus of all biblical truth. All that is contained in the Bible is a neon sign pointing to the Lord Jesus. You must know and be in union with Jesus in order for worship to be accepted by God. So listen, in this age, in this brief little age that you live in, okay, it's not going to be like this forever. In this age, we worship primarily by engaging with God through his word. It will not be like that forever. You will see his face. You will interact with him face to face. You will fall before him and see his throne. You will hear his voice. But in this age, this tiny little age, because of the fall, because of the curse, we are not allowed to look on God. And in this age, we engage with God primarily through engaging with him through his word. We meet with God in his word. And the focus and the point of all biblical truth is in the Lord Jesus, who embodies the truth of God. He is the word of God and the truth of God. So worship in truth, but without spirit, would be cold, loveless, empty. Worship that is in spirit, but without truth, can be zealous and passionate. It's real exciting, but it does not actually come to God. It is not actually accepted by God. And so let's make clear, zeal is a good thing. Have zeal, be fervent. Religious affections are a good and necessary thing. But that zeal and affection must be joined with the truth of God and specifically what the passage is addressing here, truth concerning the Lord Jesus, who is the focus of all biblical truth. Paul is saying that Israel, apart from Christ, has religious zeal, but they are not right with God. Their worship is not being regarded and accepted by God because it is zeal without the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is important additionally because of ways that this applies broader. You know, one of the points that I've been making throughout this passage and that it's amazing me more and more. I keep seeing more of it the farther we go into this section is God designed Israel to be a theater to the rest of the world. God designed Israel to be a theater for you and I. There are things about God, the gospel, and his working among us we would not understand unless God had ordained the ways that he's worked amongst the Jews and the Gentiles in these kinds of ways. And so here is another way that we can see the significance of this. Zeal without knowledge. Many a person who believes in Jesus has, say for instance, traveled to a foreign land. Traveled to a foreign land and, and interacted with the people there. And that Christian finds that the people who are there, there's, there's, there's a lot of them who are nice. And, and you know how we have that um, sometimes temptation to equate nice with good, nice with righteousness. It's not the same. Many of them are nice and they are fervent in their religion. They're practicing a false religion, but they're very duteous about it. They're very zealous. And so sometimes that Christian feeling compassion for the people will reason within themselves. They, they, they like the people who are there. They feel something. And so that, that person concludes, surely God will accept them. Surely they're okay. Surely, I mean, they're so nice. They're passionate in their worship, their duties in the religion. Surely God will accept them. Surely. Now listen to this last part because this has actually been worked out by certain thinkers and theologians. Surely Jesus will save them even though they don't believe in Jesus. Have you ever heard that one? That's actually been worked out um, by several. Um, I'll bring up a couple of names here, not because I hate them, but simply because be, be aware of some teaching. Both C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham proposed versions of that right there. So it doesn't mean that they're heretics and cast away everything. It just means they were wrong on this. And we understand how people come to this. They don't come to it by the Bible. 
but they come to it because they look out on a group of people and they feel compassion. They feel compassion and that's a good thing. But in their compassion, they think surely they're okay. Surely God would not send nice people to hell. There's a lot more that needs to be worked out about the Bible, about what righteousness is and what it means to truly please God. Okay. But surely God would not send them. Or here, here's, here's another step in this. You maybe have heard this one. Surely God would not send people to hell if they never had a chance to hear about Jesus. Ooh, this one can tug at our hearts at times. But when people come to that error, understand they come to that error by forgetting a whole lot of the Bible, but primarily forgetting God's holiness and man's sinful depravity. Listen, our sin really is evil. It is ugly. It really is an affront to God. Our sin really is a spit into the face of the holy God who deserves and demands and demands worship and obedience and reverence and love. And so, you know, we understand what it is as a Christian to look out on a crowd and to feel compassion for them. Okay. And has this thought ever come to you? This thought ever come to you? You look out on a crowd uh, and, and who are lost, but you think I'm no better than they are. I, I'm no better than they are. You know, in that moment, you're right. You're right. You're not any better than they are. But remember, God didn't save you because you deserved it. God didn't save you because you, you had reached some level of niceness that God said, oh, this guy deserves salvation. So I'll, you know, I'll give it to him. No, that's not how it comes. It, it really is all of grace. When you look out on a crowd and you think to yourself, I'm no better than they are. And you have compassion, you know, that's true, but it doesn't mean that they are spiritually okay. When you look out on a crowd and you feel compassion, don't make yourself feel better by saying, surely they're okay. Do you know what's happening in that moment? In that moment, we're trying to make ourselves feel better. We're, we're trying to get rid of that, that aching that's inside of us and the burden that is there. When you look on a person, a family member, a child, when you look on a crowd and you, and you feel compassion, praise God. The Holy Spirit gave you that, that compassion and that pity, but he meant you to do something with it. Go share the gospel. Go engage. Don't justify them in your own minds. Because here's the reality. They're not okay. They're not okay. They're not accepted by God because they're nice. They're not accepted by God because you're not any better than them or all those other reasons that come up in our head. Here is reality. John 14, six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but by me, you don't get to the father by being nice and you don't get to the father by religious zeal. You get to the father by Jesus and then Romans 10, 17. Okay. So our same chapter and part of where we're going Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, hearing by the word concerning Christ. What is the word concerning Christ? It is the message of the gospel. Listen, the nations need to hear the name of Jesus. The nations need to hear the message of the gospel and that they, they are not righteous, but there is a righteousness available to them by Jesus. So when you look out on a school and your heart breaks, like, look, look, this is one of the reasons why I often get choked up when we talk about that good news ministry that we do in the schools. These are souls, eternal souls. When you look out on a crowd like that and you feel compassion, that is good. But don't think to yourself, they must surely be okay because I feel compassion. No, they need to believe in the Lord Jesus and they need someone to tell them that. They need to be persuaded. Go tell them, engage in kingdom work, give, give until it hurts to people who are going to tell others, pray for the father to raise up workers, to go out into the harvest. This is why Jesus told us to pray that it's because the nations need to hear. It's because of this principle and I need you to hang on to it because we're coming back to it later. Zeal 
without the truth of the Lord Jesus, without the truth of the gospel of grace, it's not enough. It's not enough. It is insufficient to save. So hang on to that. Now come to verse three. For not knowing about God's righteousness. Okay, now pause there. Um, because I, I wanna, I'm going to make sure that we clarify something. It can be confusing, uh, some of it because of the way we hear English. Throughout the book of Romans, when it speaks of God's righteousness or the righteousness of God, it's not talking about God's character. Does that make sense? It is talking about righteousness that God will give to people, a right standing with him. And that can be confusing. Um, it's really easy to hear the righteousness of God and instantly think, yeah, God is righteous. Okay, he is, but that's not what this is talking about. So if I say the phrase to you, the love of God, what am I talking about? The answer is you don't know until I give you some context. Because if I say the love of God, I could be talking about God's loving character. Or I could be talking about love that God gives to you. Context would determine which of those I am talking about. Okay. And so when the text speaks of God's righteousness, all right, it instantaneously, we could just hear God's character, but that's not what Romans is addressing. It is addressing there is a righteousness that you need a right standing before God. You can't earn it and you need it. God will give it to you as a gift. So maybe think of a package. There's a package. It's boxed up as a gift. Contained inside of it is the righteousness of Jesus. The, the, the accumulated keeping of the law of Jesus and God will give that to you and it comes into your possession. Or maybe better, um, one that does come from the Bible is a robe of righteousness. Jesus's righteousness that he, he acquired, he earned, he achieved by his law keeping. God will take that robe and wrap it around you so that you wear a robe that is Jesus's righteousness so that when you are looked on by the Father, he sees Jesus's righteousness. The point is, it's a gift that is given. We're not talking about God's character here, but I need to prove that to you. <laughs> okay. So in case you're hearing it and going, well, maybe that's just an interpretation thing. No, no, no. I, I, I need you to see that this is what the text is talking about. Jump to the book of Philippians with me, please. Philippians chapter three, verse nine. One of the things that is so helpful about the Bible is that the same truths will be taught in different places in different wording is used. Okay. That's intentional by God. So same things are being talked about over in Philippians. Paul just explains it a little bit uh, differently. So Philippians 3, if you look at verse 8, the beginning there, you get a little bit of context. So he's going to say, I count all things to be lost in view of, and now he's going to talk about some things. He's going to talk about the gospel. All things are lost in view of. Now look at verse 9. And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. It's not a righteousness that I earned or I produced or I purchased or I uh, achieved, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness, watch how this is worded. This is so beautiful. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is what is being talked about. The righteousness that God will give to you. So I know that that can get confusing to just hear the word, the righteousness of God and think of this. That's why um, I, don't, I don't use the NIV a, a lot, but sometimes there are some passages that are helpful. Uh, here is one of the versions of the NIV. It renders Romans 10, 3. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So that's a helpful way of interpreting that verse there. So come back to Romans 10. Look at verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness, the righteousness that will come from God and seeking to establish their own, earn their own, achieve their own, produce their own, earn their own, because they were trying to do that, 
they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Let me, let me just very briefly remind you, it's been a long time since we were there, a couple other places in Romans where this has been brought up. Jump back to chapter one for a second. Romans 1, 16 and 17, if you remember, is the central idea for the whole book. The whole book he's stating, here's what we're going to look at. 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Listen, that is not saying God's character is revealed. What it is saying is the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And that's what is brought up throughout the book of Romans. Jump to chapter 3 for a second. Romans 3, find verse 21. Romans 3, 21, but now apart from the law, okay, so meaning not earning it by the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand how that passage would make no sense if they were talking about God's character? God is righteous, his character through faith in Christ. No, it's a righteousness that will be given to you. How? Through faith in the Lord Jesus. So, See that this is the way it's talked about. If anything else, this is kind of an example of the need for great carefulness and looking at broader context to understand individual verses of the Bible. So, righteousness that comes from God. What is contained in this verse is heavy. Israel missed righteousness. They, do, they are not righteous because they have not received the righteousness from heaven. I want you to consider how this again applies more broadly. So Israel is misrighteousness. They don't have righteousness. Um, if you don't have righteousness, what does that mean? Okay. No righteousness means you are not right with God. You're not right with God. There is no peace with God. You're not right with God and you don't have peace with God. There is no eternal life right with God, have peace with God, you get eternal life. You must be right with God. And that's the argument through the whole section on justification in the book of Romans. And, and they're returning to it in order to establish some points and then to go further. Listen, if you have a soul that will never expire, never cease, never dissolve, never grow old and, and perish in that sense of being annihilated and dissolving. If you have a soul that will never expire, there is nothing more critical than the question of all questions. How can I be right with God? The way my mentor says it is, this is the question every sane person should be asking. How can I be right with God and so have eternal life? The scripture says, if I don't have righteousness, then there is no eternal life. Israel doesn't have righteousness. Why do they not have righteousness? It's the same answer we saw last week in chapter 9, verses 30 to 33, because they pursued it wrongly. What is the wrong way? Trying to earn it yourself. They trusted in themselves that they could achieve, earn, produce Righteousness, rather than, look how it's worded, subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, what does that mean? Subject yourself to the righteousness of God. It means to admit that you cannot produce your own righteousness and so come to God. God has made a righteousness available to you. There is a, there is a robe, there is a record that will get counted as yours. It's available freely. You do not work to earn it. You do not buy it, purchase it, produce it yourself. You receive it freely. That's why it's called grace. When you turn in faith, faith in the Lord Jesus in one instant, bam, forgiven, pardoned, legally, record wiped clean. So Israel refused Jesus's teaching about all of this. 
Israel refused to believe that they could not produce their own righteousness. They insisted that they could be good enough. So what does it mean? They missed it. Now, Christian, consider how this applies more broadly. Once again, God has used Israel to be a, th a theater to the rest of the world. Do you see how this applies more broadly? Can we see why it matters today? It matters today not only because we are trying to persuade people who are uninterested in Jesus to be saved. It matters also because of all of those groups that believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they teach that you must be good and obey and accumulate merit, that it is somehow faith plus your works is how you will be right with God. They teach some version, and there's 40 different versions of them, some version of works-based salvation instead of believing the gospel of grace. You trust in yourself and you lose. This is a big deal. This is a big deal because this matters when it comes to all of those individuals, all of those Christian groups, Christian churches, Christian denominations who preach some version of a works-based salvation. Faith plus your work. See, um, it's, it's a popular view even amongst Christians who know the gospel of grace, who know justification by faith alone and Christ alone, to look at those groups and to say, well, I know they're wrong, but um, I'm sure in the end they're okay. Surely they're okay. Why? Because they, they believe in Jesus. Listen, don't you think my heart would like to be able to say that? I mean, I mean do you realize I don't enjoy being the mean guy in a group. I'm talking about even if I'm together with other pastors at like some pastor's breakfast and talking about these kinds of things and I'm kind of labeled as the hateful guy because I bring up and say, no, 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 no. The book of Galatians in at least once every single chapter addresses this issue right here with the Judaizers. Remember that the Judaizers believe Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah and they believe some of the things about him, but they taught you must add in your works. You must produce something in order to be saved. And what does Paul say about that false gospel? He says it is anathema. Let those who teach that be anathema. And then you look at these verses right here. Do you see what it is saying? Apart from the truth, the knowledge of the righteousness of God that we must receive, it is a false gospel. Okay. You, you got to know my flesh would like to just be able to say, yeah, yeah, I'm sure they're all fine. I catch a fair amount of grief for bringing this up. But this is the reality. The reality is you trust yourself and it is a false gospel, no matter how much religious zeal, no matter how much religious devotion. The New Testament demonstrates for us how to think about certain heresies. And you understand that some of the reason why it shows us how to address certain heresies is because those heresies didn't just stay in the first century. They passed all the way through down the centuries. The, the, the heresy in the book of Colossians, you, you, you need to study Colossians. You need to know it because it didn't just stay there. It's passed all the way down through the centuries. And that goes also for the heresy in the book of Galatians. We see what is the right judgment of the heresy taught by the Judaizers. Guys, it didn't just stay in the first century. It has been present in every year of the church since whenever it was Paul wrote the book of Galatians until today. And the modern day version, the modern day version of that heresy is any person, group, church, denomination that teaches or implies you contribute any amount of righteousness. By the way, that happens in some Baptist churches too. Okay. So it doesn't matter the denomination, Baptist, UCC, Methodist, Presbyterian, whatever. 
if it teaches that you contribute even 1% of righteousness, it is a denial of the gospel of grace and it is a denial of the Lord Jesus who bled and was tortured and died in order to say it is finished. And this next part is one of the places I catch the most flack about, but we have to be clear. It doesn't give me like pleasure to point out error, but it is necessary. Catholicism is the world's leader in this error of teaching a works-based salvation and this idea of contributing a righteousness of your own. It is a part of our evangelism in this world. It is a part of our evangelism in this world, not only to try to persuade people who are uninterested in Jesus to come and trust in him to be saved, but it is also part of our evangelism to persuade people who acknowledge Jesus as son of God, Messiah, Lord, but who are trusting in themselves that they contribute righteousness. There is a solemn warning here. Zeal without knowledge the knowledge of the truth of the gospel is insufficient. You, you also need to know that particularly for this church, um, this is why we came here. This is why this church in this place, it was based on the book of Galatians and our convictions from this passage, why we came to a place that was religious with religious zeal. It is because of our understanding that there must be the right understanding of the gospel of grace. We bring nothing. Venture on him, venture holy. Nothing in our hands we bring. It is Christ and Christ alone that we look to for our righteousness. And then look at verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word for end there is uh, telos. It refers to the end as in the goal. So if you're in a race, the finish line, the finish line is the goal and it is the conclusion. So, you know, in this text, the word end is a, uh, it is a, is a good translation of the word, but the way that it's worded, does it, does it not arise maybe instantaneously a, a question that you could ask of the text? Okay. Because does the question pop into your mind? You know, this seems to be saying that before Jesus came, when people were under the law, that salvation came by works. Is that the case? Well, emphatically, no. What it does mean, look at it again. Nowhere does it say um, salvation would come by works. But it is the case, just like today, theoretically, righteousness could have been achieved by works if a person had lived every moment obeying every command of God. That's just like today. Okay, Old Testament and New Testament, we are all born under the scenario of the covenant that God established at creation. The covenant of works, our children in the, in the back in their catechisms, they memorize it as the covenant of life. It's the basic arrangement of the law. Obey and you will live, disobey and you will die. Every person, Old Testament and New Testament is born under that arrangement. You were born with a situation that you could have achieved righteousness by the law. You could have. How'd you fare? I didn't do so well. Okay. We have fallen. Okay, but theoretically it exists there because you're born under the law. But when you believe in the Lord Jesus, remember Romans seven, we're brought out from under the arrangement of the law and we're brought to the arrangement of grace. We're brought out of that old covenant, the old covenant of works, and we're brought into the new covenant of grace. So, so understand the distinction, Old Testament and New Testament, Salvation cannot come by works, but righteousness could if a person kept everything. Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus is the only one in history who earned righteousness, achieved righteousness, produced 
righteousness, a righteousness derived from keeping the law of God. He's the only one. You know, understand Jesus wasn't saved. <laughs> He's righteous. He's righteous. There's a difference between saved and righteous in that sense. Saved implies needing to be delivered from the wrath of God. But Jesus did earn, produce righteousness under the law. He kept the whole thing. And he did so, so that he would be a fitting sacrifice. And so his righteousness could be counted as ours. But once you turn to God in faith through the Lord Jesus, you come out from that covenant and into the new covenant of grace. And so what verse four is saying is that Jesus has brought about an end to the law's function in that way. The law no longer functions for you as a source of possible righteousness. Okay. Now, we don't trash the law. We're not done with the law. The law still aids us and instructs us. But you are no longer under the situation of needing to obey it in order to be righteous. You're not under law. You're under grace now that you have turned in faith. So I titled this sermon, What of Those Who Trust in Themselves? Let's clarify the answer. The answer is, if you trust in your righteousness, you will get your righteousness. And therein is the problem. If you trust in your righteousness, you're going to come to the day of judgment. And you're going to bring to God in your hands all of your best righteousness. But your best righteousness amounts to rotting garbage. You're going to try to present to God the best of your deeds, and you do not have a righteousness. But there is a righteousness that is available to you. There is a righteousness that God will give to you, a right standing with God, forgiven, cleansed, record wiped clean in a moment, full pardon by full grace. A righteousness that God will give to you based on what Jesus has done, not yourself and earning it. And you will receive it when you turn and place your faith in Jesus not yourself. And that's the emphasis, not yourself, but in Jesus. If whenever you think about heaven and the day of judgment, as I bring that up, if you've never turned to Jesus to be saved and I talk about the day of judgment and you're not afraid of that, you're trusting yourself. You're trusting yourself because you are assuming everything will be okay because I'm good enough. What the Bible is telling you is you are not righteous. You have nothing to offer to God. You need something you need to receive from Christ. To you, Christian, do you see the connection between the gospel of grace, all that we've seen, and, and just really being convinced, I bring absolutely nothing to the table here. Do you see the connection between that and humility? The connection between the gospel of grace and gratitude. The connection between the gospel of grace and worship between the gospel and desire to obey God. This is why the New Testament is just all the time bringing this up. It'll all the time bring it up and review the gospel briefly and say, this is why you, for, you should forgive your enemies. This is why you should live in gratitude. This is why you should live in obedience. It's because a deep understanding of the gospel of grace brings a humbling uh, effect on our hearts, awakening, gratitude, desire to obey, desire for others to have this salvation, desire for souls to be saved, love for neighbor, love for the widow, love for the orphan, warmth of heart, awakening virtues, and a desire to obey God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you have done. We continue to say thank you. We continue to say once again, we lay ourselves on the altar, seeing just how great of grace you have given and saying, Lord, we want our life to obey you. So please, oh God, take us and use us in whatever way that you want. I ask God that your word will have its intended effect. I pray that it will produce humility, gratitude, warmth, love, desire to obey, desire to serve, care for others, God, that you will transform us by the gospel. So please produce this in us, oh God, we pray. Bless us as we're going to leave. We pray you bless the, the fellowship we're going to spend time having. 
Have, have mercy on us, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Thank you.